The following program is presented by the National Committee on United States-China Relations, www.ncuscr.org. At this institute, we track many of you probably know the flow of international students to and from America and around the world. Uh, and I often say that it is the 21st century's Silk Road because this global flow of students, now 4.4 million globally, uh, 750,000 coming just to the United States, does for this century what the Silk Road did in its uh, glory uh, when it was invented. It is not just about trade, it is about the exchange of knowledge, it is about the promotion of what one French archaeologist called Islands of Peace. Uh, Maybe you know Le Bonnois's book uh, that discussed. So I am particularly pleased to welcome you all here and a, a colleague from Georgetown. We were there together, and I'm so glad that you are. Alan hired me. <laughs> Not just the, colleagues. Best decisions we ever made. So, uh, thank you for the chance to say a thank few you. words. Well, thank you, Alan. I'm, I'm Jan Barris uh, with the National Committee on China Relations. I want to start by thanking Alan and his colleagues at IIE for allowing us to use this wonderful conference room. It's the second time we've used it for very distinguished people. Your predecessor here was uh, Christine Lowe, oh. uh, the deputy of Hong Kong's Environmental Protection Agency, our counterpart to the uh, EPA. Um, but we are very pleased that we could do this here and very pleased that we had, we had to sort of turn people away. You um, have a really interesting topic that folks are interested in, and we have the perfect person to talk to us about this Silk Road for $8 as opposed to $8,000. Um, I've known Jim now since the early 2000s. Uh, we had mutual friends. I remember one of the first times we met was on the, at a wedding reception. I can't even remember mm. who was getting married, but I remember vividly talking to you and your Richard wife. Richard Solomon. The, it thought, was Richard Solomon. Yeah. I thought, okay, could I thought that's might, who it might have been. Um, but anyway, I, so I knew him briefly and knew his reputation uh, in, up to the time that we first met in the early 2000s. But then I got to really know him in 2005 when Jim became one of 19 fellows who became part of the National Committee's inaugural public intellectuals program. And this is where we select the best of the brightest of the young China scholars, very fortunately and, and very, uh, we're very grateful to the Luce Foundation, uh, which has funded that program, not just for in its first iteration that Jim was in, but two succeeding iterations after that. And it's a wonderful program where we, set as, where we try to get, as I said, the best and brightest of the young China specialists from a variety of fields in the United States to bring them together for a two, two and a half year program. And Jim was in the first cohort and um, he is a really interesting person with a lot of different um, interests. And you have his bio in front of you. I am not going to repeat it because you can read that. I would just tell you, if you ever want to have a really fun traveling companion, you should take Jim along with you. We had a wonderful about two-week trip together to China and to Hong Kong. Right? That wasn't the Taiwan uh, trip. That was the Hong Kong uh, No, Hong Kong. It was the Hong, trip. Yeah. Hong Kong trip. Uh, and he has this very wry sense of humor, which is quite delightful. And you can tell that even reading, not even the first chapter, but even if you just read the acknowledgments, you know you're in for a treat when you read this book because 
He is, his wry sense of humor is not just when you're with him in person, but also he's got a wonderful writing style that brings you close to a subject that you may know nothing about uh, or may know a lot about, but he's still going to provide you new and interesting information and do it in a really way that's very engaging, that brings you into it. So I think the Oxford University Press, when they wanted someone to write a very short introduction to the subject, definitely chose the right person because Jim is not only very knowledgeable about Xinjiang, but he's able to present it in a lively and interesting and, and fun way. So we're very much looking forward to hearing from him. And we'll have a Q&A period after a while. But beforehand, let me turn it over to Jim. Thank you very much, Jen, for that introduction, which raises the bar even higher. I now have to entertain as well as That's inform. Right. <laughs> so I'm really nervous now, Alan. I'm sorry. You um, got the job, though. <laughs> No, but um, more, more seriously, thank you uh, to Jan and to Margaret and the National Committee for uh, inviting me to give this talk. I'm very pleased to, uh, to do it, and, um, and also to Alan and IIE for you know, giving us the space for this. And let me just quickly say a word about uh, the, the PIP program, the Public Intellectuals Program, which Jan was so, and, and others, uh, was so nice to accept me on. Um, I'm sure you know, you know a little bit about it, and this is not the time to sort of go into great detail, but one of the things which we were enjoined to do uh, as China scholars, as academics who work on China, be it historians or literature people or uh, you know, people working on any aspect of culture or politics, uh, was to learn how to speak to uh, broader audiences than academics normally do. And... Um, I'm, I'm still on a special list that they have of people who have not done their full-blown public <laughs> program yet. I'm working up. It's going to be really good when I do it. Um, but but what, what has happened to me, largely as a result of that program, is I've really thought about precisely that, about the problems of you know, addressing broader publics, um, public, you know, in public speaking, in these kind of forms, but, but in writing, too. And... Um, a lot of academic writing, as I'm sure you all well know, is targeted towards narrow audiences. It's written in inaccessible ways. Inaccessible is a nice word for it a lot of the time. Um, and so I've been in, you know, inspired by that to think about how to get around this problem without, of course, dumbing anything down necessarily. And so one of the goals of this series, and the reason I chose to write uh, for it, is that it's not meant to be an encyclopedia article. It's not meant to be a you know, nuts and bolts classroom text, although I hope it will be adopted in classrooms. But rather, an essay on the subject by someone who's working in the subject um, that will bring people in in a sophisticated way, but at the same time explaining enough so that you can sort of follow it. So, so I deal with sort of debates and, and ideas about the Silk Road rather than simply sort of trying to lay out um, a schematic, uh, sort of chronological framework for it. And, and so in, in thinking about that, I, I began with two sort of premises, fairly, I guess, sort of controversial premises. Um, and one was that the Silk Road as we know it uh, never really existed. Uh, and in fact, in an early version of a proposal, and uh, I, I actually borrowed from uh, Mike Myers' Saturday Night Live uh, coffee lady, if you remember her, remember her right? Linda, whatever her name was, um, at, who would always say at certain moments when she got verklempt, 
um, to her audience. <laughs> Things like, think of the Silk Road. Neither silk nor a road. Discuss among yourselves. <laughs> so um, Oxford convinced me not to use that as the title of the book. Uh, but that was kind of how I was, I was approaching it. Um, so in other words, the Silk Road as we know it is not precisely uh, what we know about it. And so I'll, I'll go into that a little bit. That was the first premise. But as I looked into it and thought more about it, uh, I found out that the idea of the Silk Road, especially for something which either in my eyes didn't exist or something which everyone agrees, even if they thought it did exist once, died maybe 500 years ago. Right? The Silk Road is something that ended in the past. Um, for something that either never existed or is dead, um, the idea of it is certainly very much around. And it's being brought up in all sorts of forms. Um, Indeed, as you mentioned yourself. And so that intrigued me too. Why is this idea so, so potent? Why is it still kicking around in, in a variety of, of ways? Um, so those are the sort of two th sorts of things I, I thought about. It allowed me to track from both the very ancient past uh, to contemporary times. Uh, so let me sort of then get into the substance of my, of my work, uh, talk this evening. Uh, uh, so, I've just said how the Silk Road was thought to have died maybe 500 years ago, um, but it's still very much in uh, the public eye, and you're not going to be able to read that, but uh, even for those of you who do read Chinese, it's too small. Uh, but this is an article by, uh, that was published uh, last October um, by a man named Wang Jisi, whom some of you may know. He's the dean of the School of International Studies at Beijing University a man named last year by Foreign Policy magazine as one of the 100 most important uh, global thinkers. And he um, coined the phrase uh, March West in this editorial uh, for a pivot that China, he said, should make towards its own West, towards Central Asia and the Middle East and those areas. Uh, and his idea was to increase Chinese diplomatic attention and economic investment in continental Eurasia, uh, as opposed to in the Pacific region, which was diplomatically and even militarily uh, hazardous, and certainly was an area where it was going to run into increased rivalry with the US uh, and, and frictions. Um, and in this article, he uses some interesting terminology. He talks about Shibu, the Western regions, as a generic term for everything west of China on the continent. Um, he also uses the technical terms of Central Asia, South Asia, and so on. But he uses this old Han Dynasty term uh, for places west of China. Uh, he also says that uh, if China pivots that way, they will certainly find that it won't be a pure land paradise. Again, another ancient term from Buddhism, the notion of the pure land heavens in the west. Uh, but the, nonetheless, the way was clear for rapidly constructing a new Silk Road uh, under Chinese leadership. And so this was an idea. We could have a sort of policy discussion uh, over this. Indeed, there's some venues in Washington where they're talking about just this. Uh, but it interested me as, you know, as an idea and for his evocation of these old, uh, old terms and concepts, geographical concepts, from China's past. Now, although it's still very much with us, the Silk Road idea itself um, is not an ancient one. It was coined in the 19th century by, by a German ge uh, geographer, Ferdinand von Richthofen, uh, who was the uh, uncle, I believe, of the von Richthofen, who was Snoopy's nemesis. <laughs> uh, and 
he used the term um, um, Seidenstrasse or Seidenstrassen in both singular and plural, Silk, Roads, uh, Silk Road and Silk Roads, um, to talk about Han Dynasty contacts with Central Asia and, and moving <coughs> silk. Now, the term came into English uh, not that much longer after that. What I have here is a Google engram, um, which is a, an analysis of uh, the frequency with which words come up in all the books that Google has scanned so far. It's a great thing to play around with when you know, you're, you're malingering at work <laughs> and you plug in all sorts of words. Um, uh, but, so I did this for these. And as you can see, uh, actually the term silk root is somewhat more popular than um, silk road itself. Uh, but silk roads, which is the red line at the bottom, seems to be growing. We only can do it as far as 2005. Of course, when you get to 2012, I'm hoping it'll go through the roof. Or 2013, it'll go through the roof. Um, but so we can see that from you know, the 20s, it began to pick up, and this concept has become one that's with us fairly commonly uh, through the middle of the 20th century and into the 21st. Uh, nonetheless, um, this term is quite vague uh, historically. Um, it's not quite sure what it means. It can show up anywhere, as in this coffee house uh, in Tokyo, um, which for some reason has can-can dancers painted <laughs> along the top. So there's always this question exactly what the Silk Road means uh, to whom. We're all familiar with the term as a marketing uh, meme. Uh, Silk Road is used by travel agencies. They cash in on it to sell tours almost anywhere for $8,000 or more. Uh, anywhere from Venice to Vladivostok. Restaurateurs recognize its allure. To take just the restaurants selling specifically Uyghur food and advertising the name in English so that I found them in my, in my non-scientific web search. You can find a Silk Road restaurants in Beijing, Shanghai, Toronto, Etobicoke, Sydney, Adelaide, Oakley, and London. But a Silk Road restaurant need have nothing to do with Central Asia. Silk Road is to Asian fusion what the tiki bar is to Chinese Polynesian food in the 19, 1950s and 60s. Uh, in Georgetown and M Street, there was a Silk Road restaurant called uh, Me and You, now unfortunately closed. But they served what they described as Silk Road-inspired regional American cuisine <laughs> in a decor that I describe as Nouvelle Seraglio. <laughs> uh, and I actually went there with it. I had a Uyghur student, brilliant young woman, um, who was graduating, and she, her parents uh, you know, came for the graduation. She took us, you know, we all went to dinner uh, at this place. Right? Um, and so we went in, we were seated, and the waiter came up and said, you know, hi, my name's John. I'm going to be your waiter tonight. And how y'all doing? Um, what do you know about the Silk Road? So I'm, I'm there with three Uyghurs, you know, and I said, well, these people are from the very center of it all. Anyway, so we had, we had a nice meal. Uh, there's a Silk Road restaurant in Missoula, Montana, that serves tapas. <laughs> There's a Silk Road in Walnut Creek in California that was voted recently the best Greek restaurant. A Silk Road cafe in an Irish castle with what's been called the best Middle Eastern North African cuisine in Dublin. Now in music and dance, the idea of the Silk Road often suggests a kind of Sino-Islamic mashup, which began already in the, um, with Puccini's Turandot, if any of you know the opera and various stagings. Uh, but the musical and choreographic origins of something called Silk Road music could derive from anywhere in the old world. 
of course, Yo-Yo Ma's Silk Road Ensemble is, is well known to everyone here. Um, but there are also Silk Road groups such as Guzzle, which we have an Indian sitar player and an um, Iranian gijek or fiddle player working together, playing their own brand of Silk Road music. Uh, the, <coughs> me, um, the earlier and possibly the first musician to commercially assume the Silk Road mantle um, was Kitaro, uh, or Shi Duolang. Some of you may know him by his Chinese pronunciation of his name. And his Silk Road synthesizer compositions helped launch the entire genre of New Age music. Uh, it was the background music for the uh, <coughs> Japanese television series on the Silk Road, um, which was very successful. Um, but I remember it better as pumped from the speakers of a hot tub place in Santa Cruz, <laughs> um, just about 50 yards from a school bus that had been repainted with purple lotuses. <laughs> Now, the Silk Road has also made its entrance in fashion. For the 2011 autumn-winter season, Os Oscar de la Renta looked at the Silk Road, and he rolled out a quote, I'm quoting here, a magic carpet ride complete with Ottoman jackets embroidered in the manner of Bukhara carpets, uh, jewel-like costumes from the court of Tsushi, dragon empress of China, North African threadwork, patchwork paisley tunics, ostrich feather skirts, and gigantic Genghis, Fon Fo Genghis Khan fox hats. Now, these kinds of outfits could certainly be well complemented by Le Métier de Butet's 2011 fall-winter collection, Introducing the Silk Road, A Journey of Discovery and Luxurious Sensuality. And they have an um, eyeshadow palette collection <laughs> called Silk Road Kaleidoscope that features shades tapestry, damask, ikat, and brocade, appropriate enough. Um, and these may be layered and intertwined however one wishes. And don't forget their East, way, east Meets West nail lacquer collection, $95 at Neiman Marcus. Now there's also an online marketplace called the Silk Road where one can buy, for example, a gram of Afghani hash, one-eighth of an ounce of sour 13 weed, 14 grams of ecstasy, a gram of tar heroin. There's no plutonium for sale because their uh, website prohibits sale of anything whose purpose is to defraud uh, or to harm people. Uh, you have to access the, the site through the Tor network um, which you know, hides your origins. Uh, and all purchases are, are made in the digital currency, Bitcoin. Um, but you can order with confidence from sellers rated by a system the same as used by Amazon or eBay and get your nicely professionally packed deliveries within a few days. Now, actually, this site has been in the news uh, last few weeks, first of all, because of the uh, speculation in Bitcoin itself, which wreaked havoc on its pricing structure, I guess. And then they were hacked and brought down. So someone managed to get in there and actually bring them down. It's interesting. But so there's you know, many kinds of um, uses of the Silk Road idea. Uh, perhaps the most interesting, though, have been those, um, has been the deployment of the Silk Road concept uh, in political venues or in somewhat politically tinged cultural venues. Uh, there was a fabulous festival as part of the Smithsonian's uh, annual Folklife Festival um, back in 2002. Uh, but it had a very strong subtext. Uh, as you can see from, uh, you can't really see here, the, uh, I don't have a bright enough pointer, but on the catalog cover, um, the, the subtitle of this festival was Connecting Cultures, Creating Trust. 
and it was staged on the National Mall in Washington uh, in summer of 2002, uh, while down the street at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, uh, the, the drums of war for of war on Iraq uh, were beginning to be pounded. Um, and there was a very interesting um, sort of talk given there um, by uh, Colin Powell, um, who at that point had not yet made his sort of infamous comments at the UN about the, the um, yellow cake uh, uranium and was still seen as sort of a voice holding back against the war in Iraq um, in the Bush administration. So he got a very big sort of applause when he gave the keynote speech for this, uh, for this festival. Um, now, this notion then that the Silk Road is... Uh, sort of the flip side of the great game. If the great game is about rivalry and strategic struggles and shuffling for position, the Silk Road is about communications being opened uh, through the work of merchants you know, traveling and missionaries going back and forth and tolerance, religious uh, pluralism sort of breaking out all over thanks to the uh, intrepid travels of merchants on camels, I guess. Um, if, so that's the kind of sense of it. And it shows up very strongly with that, uh, with that tone uh, in textbooks in particular. I've looked at a bunch of these. And they emphasize intercultural connections, interactions on the Silk Road. Um, they have a very multiculturalist and even neoliberal storyline, uh, which tends against the Huntingtonian class of civilizations uh, approach to cultures uh, in this region and to international affairs. But the Silk Road concept has been deployed uh, in even more pointed political ways. Wang Jisi was not the first to draw on the concept as a foreign policy framework. Uh, the Silk Road is frequently evoked in diplomatic discourse today as shorthand for the entire region, including China, Central Asia, South Asia, Iran, uh, Turkey, and Russia. Uh, but it's done to, this is done to convey a variety of messages. In 2011, Secretary of State Clinton rolled out a foreign policy rubric uh, in a speech in Chennai, India, pointing out that Quote, historically, the nations of South and Central Asia were connected to each other and the rest of the continent by, sp by a sprawling trading network called the Silk Road. So the U.S. thus branded its efforts to heighten India's influence, to spur economic integration in the region, to smooth border crossing for goods and people, to ease India-Pakistan tensions and help with Afghanistan's development uh, with a slogan based on historical imagination. Let's work together to create a new Silk Road. Now, what's interesting about this, the way it was laid out in American policy, uh, is that it was very much a north-south corridor, which was described. We were thinking about India, Pakistan, Afghanistan, obviously, and further connections up into Central Asia. But conspicuous by their absence in these discussions um, are China and Persia, that is, China and Iran. Um, which, to talk about the Silk Road without reference to China and Iran, is interesting, to say the least. Uh, but Others were eager to jump into that gap uh, and evoke the Silk Road notion um, specifically about China and Iran ties. On the occasion of the 40th anniversary of diplomatic ties between Iran and China, Iran's foreign minister, Ali Akbar Salehi, noted that uh, the Islamic Republic of Iran and the People's Republic of China are two civilized countries and enjoy an ancient history and the Silk Road, which has worldwide fame uh, and is considered the historical symbol of relations between the two nations. Uh, now, this is diplomatic boilerplate, um, but I think it's significant in the way it highlights uh, the antiquity and the foundational nature of both Persian and Cynic civilizations. Uh, 
Uh, these are aspects of both countries' self-identity that are often neglected um, by the West in more imperious moments. Right? Their, 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 their age, uh, their, the fact that they're civilized. He comes right out and says it in those terms. And then linked up by this Silk Road. Um, now later in that same year, so this is I guess 2011, uh, the Chinese tabloid, an official Chinese tabloid, Global Times, or Huanzhou Shibao, responded to uh, this uh, American New Silk Road strategy, and in particular to the U.S. outreach to Burma, which had you know, shown some successes just then, um, with a front-page editorial advising that China should, quote, revive the Silk Road, smash American containment. <laughs> so the Silk Road there, then, means the opposite of you know, American extension of influence in the area. It's an exclusionary notion. Um, and when um, Pakistan's president, uh, president Ali Zardari, uh, he was in, at the Urumqi Trade Fair uh, in the summer of 2011, and it was quite embarrassing for him because some Uyghur militants had uh, stabbed some people in a restaurant. There was, there was an incident. Uh, and rather interestingly, China announced that these militants had been trained in Pakistan, sort of publicly said this, while he was there. So as you can see, he it's a difficult time. What's that? He doesn't look too happy. He doesn't look too happy. Look too. No. Um, but so he hoped to mend fences, and he issued a statement saying that you know, these events, of course, will be looked into thoroughly and, and investigated. Um, and then he pledged that the Silk Road will be fully revived. So perhaps <laughs> that mention of the Silk Road worked. It's great what you can do with PowerPoint. That's not Photoshop. That's real. No, no, that's, the, the photos are real. <clears throat> so, the Silk Road can clearly mean many things. By the way, can you all hear me well enough in the back? I, was, all right. I assured them that my voice could indeed project, so I'm glad it can. So it can mean many things. Um, my daughter, for example, admitted that she'd learned about the Silk Road in middle school um, in, her, in her textbooks, but she'd always kind of imagined it as something like the Red Ribbon Road in older <laughs> versions of Mario Kart. Now, the textbooks are not that bad, um, but along with museum exhibitions, TV documentaries, um, other sorts of writings, uh, they tend to reinforce several of the most commonly misunderstood, in my view, aspects, the most problematic aspects of the Silk Road. Um, and there are many sort of world historians and sort of big historians who continue to reiterate these particular aspects. Uh, so for the rest of my talk, I want to talk a little bit more uh, specifically about the Silk Road and history and my proposed revision of how we should think about it. Um, so I've rendered this down somewhat oversimplistically to three main points or sets of points um, of, of things I think we should rethink about the Silk Road. First of all, the very fact that it was a road or routes through exotic places, uh, that merchant caravans traveled extremely long distances along it, bridging distant points east and west, uh, especially China and Rome, uh, and that the Silk Road, ancient as it was, came to an end at some point. So to begin with, we have the notion of the Silk Road uh, as a route or sometimes routes across the continent. Uh, often we add in a maritime Silk Road, which is certainly a, a good thing to do. But I think there's a uh, bias on the part of cartographers uh, 
um, that if you have something you know, called a road, if you're talking about it, well, then by God, you should draw it as a road on the map. <laughs> right? And I had that, despite my arguments in this book, my cartographer sort of came back to me, I'd given her all the scrap and so on, I said, but where's the Silk Road? There's no Silk Road on your map. <coughs> so uh, there's an impulse to sort of draw something like this you know, on the map. But in fact, if we think about it, uh, the Silk Road was not like Route 66 tra- running across the continent. Um, if we consider all the exchanges um, going back and forth, all the directions involved, it's really much more and better to think about it as a network linking a series of nodes uh, rather than as some sort of linear linear road. And some of the reasons for this I hope will become clear as I, as I go on. Um, and even this sort of distinction of maritime versus land uh, routes is misleading um, because one of the things we do know about the earliest trade coming from China moving de- and, and getting to the Mediterranean or the Arab world and so on is that it actually, my, my point is not, unfortunately not powerful enough, but it actually went overland through Xinjiang and then down over so the passes into North, in Afghanistan and North India and from there came down into the Arabian Ocean and went overseas and then via the Red Sea and the Persian Gulf through into the Mediterranean region. Now, you know, this is not the, to say that all goods and all communication went by that route in sort of the first centuries, last centuries BC, first centuries AD. Uh, but that sort of one of the things we know about, and of the sources that we actually have, they point quite strongly to that being a principal uh, route insofar as goods made it from China all the way to the Mediterranean at, at all. So that's a, that's a hybrid that's both maritime and overland. Um, all right. But if what we mean by Silk Road is no less than the whole network of exchanges across Eurasia from ancient times, then the Silk Road is no longer a concrete thing uh, that you can travel on, but rather an ongoing system or a process, which is how I treat it. All right, now the issue of merchant, travel, uh, merchant caravans that they traveled uh, long distances and so on. Uh, first of all, we imagine these intrepid merchants that I was talking about. Uh, but again, from what evidence um, we have, and a, and a brilliant argument about this has been made by Valerie Hansen, um, using documents from the Turfan Oasis and other things. Wife of the gentleman sitting right Yes, here. which is why I was... This is not Valerie Hansen herself, but he's associated with her. Um, that the largest quantities of silk and other sorts of goods that actually were moving sort of out into Central Asia uh, from China were not being brought by merchants. She finds merchant documents, uh, and they show small-scale, kind of local, at best regional interchanges. Uh, but what's really moving big quantities of stuff, of specie, of silk, uh, bulk silk and so on, uh, are states. Um, the Chinese state for its diplomatic purposes, for military purposes, to support armies. Um, and this actually tallies with what I found in modern times, back doing work from my earlier book on Xinjiang in the 18th century. Uh, the Qing state was sending huge amounts of silver, huge amounts of silk out there to trade with Kazakhs and others. Um, and in general, the times when the Silk Road was most open and was, and goods and people were flowing most easily, um, were when large empires controlled large swaths of territory. When there were fewer players, not more, it was easier to travel and so on. So um, rather than the 
you know, brave actions of private merchants. What we're really talking about at the Fleur, at the high point of the Silk Road, are periods when there are lar a few large empires controlling most of the territory, uh, and for their own political and military purposes, uh, they're moving uh, goods, money, other sorts of things around. Don't forget the nomads. We focus on trade between east and west. We draw maps from one, uh, lines from one end of the map to the other. Uh, but in fact, what we know, if you really look closely, is that a lot of the, again, if you're looking at large quantities such as they are that were, that were traded, uh, they were moving from sedentary states, agrarian empires, up into the hands of nomad empires, um, of the Xiongnu, of the Turks, of the Mongols, and other groups like that. Um, as part of diplomatic arrangements, tribute payment, um, in exchange for horses in particular, and for other reasons like that. Um, now these nomad states consumed some of these goods, used them themselves. They also probably traded them on, uh, or they hired people, often people from the oases of Central Asia, um, to help them to do this brokering of goods. But they were intimately involved with this exchange um, and with the connections across 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 Eurasia. Uh, and their own consumer demand helped shape the kind of things that were moved back and forth. And this is very clear if you uh, read Mongol history. Uh, the Mongols, of course, controlled at one point everything from Eastern Europe through to Korea. And in particular, there was an axis of communication between Persia and China. Uh, and you can read about the sorts of things they sent back and forth. And they were interested in certain kinds of textiles. They were interested in artwork. Uh, they were interested in any sort of specialists, be they uh, entertainers, be they craftsmen. Uh, and that demand moved certain things back and forth, and it didn't move other things back and forth. So we have to remember the nomads. Uh, and then this problem, uh, again, sort of an awkward term that I've come up with, uh, peripherocentrism, which is the focus on those points at either end of Eurasia. And there's, of course, a wow factor when we think about Marco Polo. And I'm not saying Marco Polo didn't go to China. Um, someone else already wrote that book. Mm -hmm. But uh, I am saying that more important than those relatively few people who went the whole way uh, are, is the multitude of exchanges and uh, uh, sort of local and regional bases at the networks all the way along. Like that. Um, and in fact, when you really get down to it, there's very little evidence of any direct Roman Han connections whatsoever. Even the silks, which the Romans are talking about, uh, perhaps they were traded from China, but there were some other silk-type products which may have come from islands in the Mediterranean or from India uh, as well. And so that's sort of a distortion of the real importance of the Silk Road, which is all of these other sort of exchanges, and the, and the role of the middle. Um, India, Persia, uh, states even in Afghanistan uh, benefited from and supported these exchanges more so than either of these players at the distant ends. Now, what I do in the central chapters of the book is to look at a variety of examples of Silk Road items and Silk Road phenomena, uh, which demonstrate not simply movement of a thing from one place to another, 
but rather a very complex uh, variety of, uh, of exchanges um, and of you know, emergence of similar phenomena in different places. Um, and this is perhaps the result of diffusion. So if there's a technology, for example, like that of the chariot in um, sort of Bronze Age times, which after it first appears, very quickly appears all the way across the Eurasian steppe and down into the main states all across the continent. Um, you can ask, all right, was that simultaneously invented in different places? Was it an instance of convergence? Uh, or did it, was it invented in one place and then diffused? And we, ask, we can ask those questions about all sorts of things. The domestication of the horse, the domestication of wheat, um, the domestication of um, the wine grape, the tech, various kinds of technologies, and so on. Uh, and we get different answers. Um, DNA evidence actually allows us, when looking at biological things, biological material, to actually get to that question in a way we never could before, by the way they triangulate back through the genetic evidence. Um, we can actually say, well, in fact, the grape was first domesticated uh, in Georgia, in the Caucasus, uh, and then that domesticated stock was then mixed with wild grapes along the way, particularly in Persia, ultimately all the way into, into China and Central Asia. So I can't go into all of the different examples that, that I have in the book here, but uh, the main point is that uh, we're not simply talking about moving of a thing, but of spread of ideas, and sometimes a complex of hybrid of diffusion and convergence. Sometimes things begin in the middle and move out in both directions and so on. So let me give you... Well, and, and so all of this then um, leads me to talk about the Silk Road and Silk Road phenomena as the creation of a trans-Eurasian cultural substratum. That's another big sort of mouthful of a term. Uh, but I think that's what we're really talking about when we talk about the Silk Road. Uh, these underlying shared aspects of culture, broadly defined to include technology and even pathogens and other things like that. Uh, that were there across the old world uh, and were, made us increasingly connected, made the old world increasingly, increasingly connected to itself um, through time. Now, I have a few examples of these, which I hope will sort of show you what I mean. Um, there are stories, in, stories known as Jakarta tales, uh, tales about the early lives of the Buddha before he became enlightened, before he became the Buddha. And these very often are in the form of uh, animal stories. And they end up with a moral. And then you know, the Buddha, from his future enlightened state, makes a comment on you know, these antics of animals in the past. Um, and as it it's no surprise, then, that many of these stories are very, very similar to Aesop's fables. Uh, so much so that you can't, in fact, say whether they were initially Aesop's fables that moved, perhaps, with Alexander and his people to India, or were initially Indian folklore that moved, again, through those paths of Hellenization that Alexander left to the Mediterranean. Uh, instead, you have this common narrative repertoire that both Aesop's fables and Jakarta tales and others draw on. And this filters through. Um, you see some of these same stories and tropes uh, in later Indian collections known as the Panchatantra, uh, in an Arabic collection known as Kalila Wadima, in the Thousand Witch 
feeds into the 1001 Nights. They show up in Boccaccio's Decameron. They show up even in Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. Uh, all of these sort of nested story collections um, both show that, that genre, which goes back to the uh, Indian Jakarta tales, but also uh, similar narrative tropes, animals, and so on. Sometimes the animals are changed, but they're doing the same kinds of things, you know, dropping bits of cheese from a tree and what animals do in these stories. Um, and some of these move, the same, move in the other direction as well. Um, there are stories from the Jakarta tales which um, went into East Asian folklore uh, through the transfer of, of Buddhism. Um, there's a story of the monkey and the crocodile uh, in the Jakarta tales, which becomes uh, the rabbit and the turtle in China and, and Korea. Now, along the same lines, this give you a visual example of this. Again, sticking with our Hellenic influence and the sort of Afghanistan nexus of Silk Road communication. Um, here we have, uh, obviously, sort of an image of the Buddha on the left with a protector uh, on the right. Uh, this is from a Gandharan frieze from probably the first century AD uh, in, um, near Kandahar in Afghanistan. Uh, and it, as I said, it, it's Buddhist. Uh, but the figure on the right as a protector um, is simultaneously Vajrapani, one of the usual protectors of the Buddha, and he's holding in his left hand a Vajra, which is a lightning bolt. If you don't know anything about Tibetan Buddhism, you've seen these sorts of things. Um, but in his right hand, he's holding a club, uh, and he's dressed in sort of a skin and has this big beard, and so he's also Hercules. And there are other examples of this, too, where you know, it's quite clear that he's Vajrapana and Hercules together. So this is clearly a, a blending of these. Um, and then, of course, you'll see behind the Buddha uh, is that halo, which we're familiar with from Christian iconography, but it actually comes into Christian iconography quite late, several centuries after this. It's first in, in Buddhist, but it's in Buddhist iconography. Before that, probably in Zoroastrian. Uh, but you can't, of course, trace those steps other than to find where they're attested in art. And so you know, we don't know who first thought of this idea and, and so on. But it's one of those kind of cultural substratum items that I'm talking about. <clears throat> All right, so um, this was an image that I put up. Actually, I put on my midterm for my undergrads in the Central Asia class. And, and you now know everything about Gandhar and art that they know or should have known. Um, they did not see this picture before the midterm. All right. um, but I want you to play Are You Smarter Than a 20-Year-Old? Um, and tell me what this is. The Trojan horse. None of them even tried it. They, had, you know, they could opt out of this question. None of them even tried it. I don't know why. But exactly, it's Trojan horse. And then you see over on the left, there's a woman there. She, she's dressed in Indian style, right? But that's Helen. Yes, of course. So, uh, anyway, I don't know why they didn't. I thought it was an easy, good question. And now we know, Alan, that you are indeed smarter than Georgetown undergraduates. <laughs> All right. Uh, one of the best examples of Silk Road phenomena as, uh, as, as a shared culture, rather than simply one thing moving from one place to something else, uh, is that of blue and white wear blue and white ceramics known as Qinghua in, in Chinese. Uh, now, if you think about Chinese porcelain, you know, the first thing that comes to your mind if you think about a Ming vase is probably a blue and white 
bars, right? This is archetype. It typifies much Chinese porcelain for most of us, um, unless we're, I suppose, experts in this. Uh, but in fact, um, this is a complex cultural amalgam, the result of many, many long-distance contexts. Uh, blue and white ware began in China under Mongol imperial patronage, uh, and it relied upon uh, the opening up of supplies, of, of, of voluminous supplies of cobalt oxides imported from Iran. Uh, these imports were facilitated by the Mongol unification um, and also by, uh, and, and, and the production of this kind of ware was stimulated by the fact that Mongols really liked it for their courts. Um, later on, Ming and Qing Chinese connoisseurs would look down their noses at this stuff as sort of gaudy and vulgar um, you know, export wear and so on and so forth. They didn't see it as that high culture. And in part of this was their bias that the Mongols had liked it, therefore you know, it couldn't be that good. Um, so it developed then under Mongol uh, patronage, later on as an export wear, particularly to, the middle, to, to Islamic lands. Um, it then spawned all sorts of imitations in Central Asia, uh, in Iran, uh, in the Ottoman Empire, uh, ultimately in Holland and elsewhere in Europe, everybody started making blue and white ware. Of course, they couldn't make it the way the Chinese did. Um, this particular look, which we see the Chinese example is in the top left, Ottoman in the top right. Uh, there's a Delft blue and white in the bottom left, and then willow ware from modern Britain or America uh, in the bottom right. Uh, Chinese blue and white relies on kaolin uh, clays fired at very high temperature to get that translucent whiteness and then that special kind of blue on top. And in the other sort of knockoff versions, they would put a slip with tin in it to get that sort of whiteness on top of stoneware. So if you actually break it, uh, or if it's broken, you can see this red in the inside, which you won't see with China. Nevertheless, the, the aesthetic of it was copied all across um, Eurasia, um, ultimately by, of course, industrial means in Britain, using templates to put the design on. And this famous, unfortunately, the image isn't large enough, but the, I'm sure you've all seen you know, willow ware with the pagodas, with the curly eaves, um, with the flying swallows, boats, and so on and so forth, uh, which uh, for, so typifies what China looks like both senses of the word China, uh, for many people. Uh, and I remember when I was a kid, uh, my mother would go you know, to the supermarket, and every week when you did your shopping, uh, you know, if you bought enough, you could get a piece of this, you know, industrially produced, and so that housewives could build up their uh, China collections. Um, so we went from the favored design of the Mongol courts, or the courts of Cathay, to something that became fully democratized and you know, sort of bourgeois uh, uh, product of industrial society over the course of eight centuries. Yep. You want to save some time for questions? Okay, good. Um, all right, so um, I'm almost done. Uh, we don't really want to talk about dumplings, do we? No. Oh, maybe we do. All right. We can't leave the dumplings out. So um, very, very quickly, um, you all know Jiaozi. Right, <clears throat> but there's something else you may know, or you know, Peking ravioli, you know, Chinese dumplings, right? Um, you may know something known in Chinese called uh, mantou, which is steamed bread, right? Uh, well, it turns out that this word mantou is very interesting because what jiaozi are called uh, in, uh, well, in Korea they're called mandu, right? 
Um, in Tibetan, it's Momo, which may be related. But in Central Asia, they're Mante. Uh, in Afghanistan, they're Mante. Um, all the way across, in Turkey and so on. So there's a linguistic connection with something made with bread. And it turns out Manto in the Song Dynasty had a filling. So somehow this word has spread across Eurasia. And also the idea of the small triangular dumping, dumpling, I would argue, has, has spread as well. Even if you look at the Russian pelmeni, uh, the stories about how they were invented involved hunters working with, or, or going out and um, to, you know, cooking these things up. Um, and the original idea came from a nomadic tribesmen whom, with whom they were hunting uh, in, the, in the steppes. All right. Just my final point, which I won't spend too much time on, is this idea that the Silk Road um, ended at one point. Um, and there's various ways to attack this. I won't go into all of it. You can, to, you know, theoretically, if you think about it the way I've been thinking about it, obviously it couldn't have ended, because I'm simply talking about communication and context across Eurasia. There's also empirical evidence that you know, tea trade and rhubarb trade and silk and trade for horses and so on continued through the 16th, 17th, 18th centuries. The opening of direct maritime communication between Europe and Asia did not put an end to these communications, as is often said. Um, but there's another way to think about this, too. Consider this. A country on one end of Eurasia promotes a religious system through military, political, and diplomatic means. A country on the other end, attracted by the religious system, studies it eagerly, translating its textual corpus. Envoys pass back and forth. Besides the religion itself, much else is introduced from one country and civilization to another, including technology, music, and art. One country imitates the artistic styles of the other, carving similar statuary and erecting its temples and palaces in a related architectural style. We could be talking about India and China, of course, um, but we could be talking about something else as well. By the way, where are we here? Ah, so, well, you, of course, do know that. I can't fool you. But, indeed, it is. It's the Sino-Soviet Friendship Building and the, now the Shanghai Exhibition Center, but very much in the style of what's known as the Stalinist Empire architecture, sort of wedding cake architecture, which you know, the Soviets spread about. Uh, and that's my point. Besides architecture, we could also point to socialist realist sculpture. And this, of course, is the memorial to the people's heroes um, with and you know, obviously owing something to socialist realist style in you know, Soviet Union in general, um, with their solid muscular figures bursting out of the living rock with scowls of heroic determination. And this is a reference that people in Washington will get more readily perhaps than you. Uh, but this is the uh, Martin Luther King Memorial designed by a Chinese uh, artist. Uh, and so my point is here that Silk Road exchanges have never left us, but rather have become part of our global landscape today. Thank you. Okay. Dan, you want to start? Yes. Uh, I'd like you to expand a bit on uh, the impact of the Silk Road, but perhaps more in the macro level. For example, at its heyday, what percentage of global trade was it? How did it compare with other trade? And perhaps more interestingly, what effect did it have on the comparative power and strength of the countries that were involved in it? Did it change the relative economic and, and military power and relationships among them? Mm -hmm. Okay, so we live in the modern world. We live in a world which is shaped by cheap fuel. And 
ready communications. We can move um, scrap metal, wheat. Um, we can move scrap paper, as we met on our trip. Right. trip um, a a uh, woman there has become a billionaire by moving American <laughs> scrap paper from back to China where they turn it back into boxes to sell us more stuff in. Right? But the reason she could do that is because you can move stuff cheaply over long distances. Right? Um, so it's not just maritime, it's fossil fuel driven communications make large scale commodity trade possible in modern times. All right? So when we're to- we tend to think about the Silk Road and ancient trade you know, through these lenses, but of course it wasn't that way. Anything that was moved over long distances had to have a very high value relative to its weight and size and just general inconvenience. So, you know, precious metals, jewels, high art, uh, slaves, you know, things like that. Um, but we're not talking commodity trade, and therefore we're not talking about uh, economy, uh, about trade driving uh, economic growth uh, the way we talk about it today. Uh, now, there's some exception to that. Um, I, for, you know, China's expansion to into Central Asia at various points uh, was not driven by some Leninistic, you know, imperialistic uh, impulse trying to capture markets uh, and so on. It was driven strategically. Right? But if you were in Persia, if you were in Afghanistan, such as the Kushan Empire, um, many of those middle players uh, did in fact benefit economically off of trade going through. And this is very, very important for, for places in the middle. It was not economically important for China uh, at any point. It was important that, you know, if you, need, you needed horses. India needed horses. And so they would sort of do these kinds of trades of textiles for horses that we would call Silk Road trade. Uh, but it was not an economic driver generally for those main players on the, on the farther ends. So that would be my answer for, for that. Andrew. And I want to, I'm sorry, introduce who you are. Andrew Baer. Been to Urumqi, so uh-huh. some idea. But you mentioned Route 66, and I think <coughs> that kind of supports your thesis about the Silk Road. I was thinking of traveling on Route 66, and apparently that doesn't exist. It's, it's a series Anymore. of interconnected yeah. hmm. roads that somebody drew a line on and said this is going ah. to be Route 66, and yet it has this magical aura about it as being uh, essential to American so, travel. So it doesn't exist anymore, or it never it really never existed? Exists. Ah, okay. Well, I mean, people put right. signs on right. it, but, but it, was it wasn't a road. A real interstate, yeah. They were pre-existing yeah. roads that were just connected up. Oh, interesting. And, and now it really doesn't exist. Right. So, so it's, it's, it's a construct just, as well. Like right. yeah. Interesting. I saw a hand up over. Hi, yeah, my name's John McCann. Um, I got my master's at SOAS and studied under Dr. Wong Tao on uh, bronzes and Stacey Pearson ceramics. And my grandfather was a missionary in China. Um, Hmm. Bad word. Um, I came back to the States and have since changed, and I've, I've gone to seminary, and now I'm studying religion, and I actually am interested in studying Christianity, early Christianity, in that period, what we call the sort of 5th to 8th century 
uh, Tang mm -hmm. Dynasty and through the quote-unquote Silk Road mm -hmm. area. And mm -hmm. I'm just wondering if um, this is the field. I'm just I'm just getting into it now. I'm just yeah. starting to, yeah. to look into it. Is, is this something that has been widely studied? Is it something that's um, Really very, very little in, in, in Central Asian history has been widely studied. Uh, I mean, it's not like the Civil War in the U.S. with you know, you get a stack of monographs on any one subject. So, um, if you wanted to write the book on Christianity across Central Asia, um, you could probably do it. Um, you could certainly write the synthetic volume, drawing upon the articles by various previous scholars, as long as you could read Russian, German, uh, Chinese. Persian, those other things as well, right? Syriac, Syriac is very important. Um, so, but um, no, it's a fascinating subject because um, the East, uh, sometimes called Eastern Christianity, this is a term which um, uh, subscribers to the faith prefer over Nestorianism, but it's, it's more commonly known as Nestorian Christianity. So after a schism of sorry, I can't remember the particular date of the schism, something in the 4th century. The yeah. eastern branch that was uh, repressed in the West continued, and there are Nestorian Christians in um, you know, well-known communities in what is now Kazakhstan, yeah. uh, sort of Semiridetia area. Um, among the Mongol groups in 12th, 13th century, a lot of the women, in fact, were Christian, uh, interestingly enough, and there were sort of Christian princes. Um, and of course, from the 7th century, as you mentioned, I believe, uh, uh, there was a bishopric in Beijing, or excuse me, in Xi'an. Yeah. yeah. Um, and there's a big stele about that. Yeah, I've seen the stele. Uh, yeah. And so um, there, there, there is a, uh, it has to be to be written. I recommend you read William of Rubric's account of going to the, um, the court of the Khans in, in Karakoram. This is not Karakoram in the Pamirs, this is the Mongol capital of Karakoram. Because uh, he was a Dominican friar sent by the Pope. He wrote a letter back to King some Louis of Louis of France. Um, and he is very upset to find Eastern Christians there who are doing everything wrong. <laughs> um, you know, there are Saracens, right, Muslims there, and he yeah. complains about them too. That's but they don't exactly get him, kind of but they don't get him nearly as angry as these Supposed Christians who he finds nope. you know, aren't doing this. William, I'll, I'll give you the reference later. Okay, fine. Mm -hmm. Just, I, I just want to comment on that. Though, in terms of the spread of various religions along the road, <coughs> there were lots of them going to very different places. I've done some research work and used to give some lectures on the Jews in China. And one of the first actual artifact that one has, knowing that there was some exchange between. Jews in China is something that Ariel Stein found mm -hmm. along a fragment yeah. of a Jewish prayer book that Ariel Stein found on the, what he called the Silk Road, which every one of these experiences right, well, it was. Yeah, but. Yeah. Which um, Valerie Hansen has a reproduction of that in her book. <coughs> Sorry, Richard. Yeah, uh, Richard Bernstein. Who's uh, <laughs> also written a book on this area. Yeah. Yeah. Um, on the Shranzang's route, I reproduced his route of uh -huh. directions. Um, I, uh, I was intrigued uh, by your comment that um, the time when Silk Road flourished most was during the time when there were a small number of large empires mm -hmm. that controlled it because it stands to reason uh, they would have uh, had fewer borders. 
uh, that people had to cross. And I was, I thought about this when I was on my own trip, which was a limited part of the Silk Road, mm -hmm. so-called, uh, from China to India. Um, and wondering whether, in fact, it would have been a lot easier to have made the trip a thousand years earlier. <laughs> and the, um, in terms of uh, yeah. borders and passport controls and restrictions, uh, barriers, uh, political barriers, uh, religious barriers, whatever. But the thought that I've just had now from your comment about the large empires is a kind of, that the Silk Road died with the end of the empires and the rise of nationalism, really. Didn't it? I mean, mm -hmm. you can think of it that way. I mean, mm -hmm. I know you, you, the Silk Road never stopped. Uh, uh, it never existed and it never, and it never ceased to exist. Uh, but uh, but the, uh, the real obstacle to the Silk Road is the same thing uh, that happened throughout the world with the death of the, of the empires. I mean, you think of the, uh, the combination of the British and the Ottoman empires mm -hmm. uh, of the 19th up to the early 20th century, where you had these amazing cosmopolitan cities uh, from Aleppo in the west uh, to Shanghai and Hong mm -hmm. Kong in the east, where you still have Hong Kong. Uh, but then the rise of nationalism eliminated these, uh, ended up in persecutions of minorities, Jews in particular, there were Jewish communities all through this area, and very few of them anymore, partially because of the rise of Zionism, which is mm -hmm. the kind of nationalism. Mm -hmm. uh, now just, you know, just throw that out. That's a, that, interestingly uh, put it, that's I mean, happened. in writing about Xinjiang, I, I came to the, uh, I have a book, a history of Xinjiang called Eurasian Crossroads, which is just focused on the Xinjiang region. Um, and I came to the realization that the period of the Sino-Soviet split, you know, from, from around 1960 through the mid-80s or so, um, was really a more severe break in these communications than anything that had happened earlier on. I mean, the borders had been porous before. There were people going back and forth. There were goods going back and forth. Um, but they could close that border more or less during that time, which indeed they did. Um, and you know, Xinjiang became a backwater. Uh, China did not uh, develop it. You know, the, um, the, the Trans-Siberian Railway all the way across, obviously Siberia, you know, linking Moscow to Vladivostok, I think was completed in 1905. Uh, China didn't get a railway to Urumqi uh, from Gansu uh, until 1962, and they didn't get the railway to Kashgar until 1999. And what happened between 62 and 99? Well, in 62, you know, there was no reason to link that up. In fact, they were worried about a Soviet invasion. But but after the 80s and after, of course, 1991, they were no longer worried about that. And so we've seen this vast investment in infrastructure, particularly transportation infrastructure, in Xinjiang, um, tying it to Central Asia, which is now, of course, an important market. Uh, and, and, and South Asia, Pakistan in particular. Um, and so uh, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, the acts of states, I'm not sure nationalism itself um, sort of prevents these things necessarily, but states in the name of nationalism or in the name of security or whatever uh, have closed off borders and have persecuted very, particularly diasporic minority <coughs> groups, which are very important for all of these kind of connections. I may be about. conflating the, the, the end of the great cosmopolitan mm -hmm. no, but with uh, the rise of these borders, and it would require a little further. 
funny, but I'm interested in adding to what you no, said. No, I like that. I know if you've, if you've crossed the border, the, the single overland border that's open between Pakistan and India. Uh, I've, near, I've seen the... Lahore. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've done it in both directions, and it's amazing to do because there's nobody there. Hmm. I mean, here you have these two um, very similar zones of civilization that once belonged to the same large empire where there was an enormous amount of travel uh, back and forth. Usually from Amrit, it's, it's really basically the, the road from Amritsar uh, to Lahore. From, from one side of the Punjab to the other, really. Yeah, right, yeah. exactly. Mm -hmm. and there's nobody on it. And then you think about Peshawar and the road into Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it's similar. There's mm -hmm. uh, you know, very restricted travel. There's a time, you know, Gandhar in our time, everything like that. Was, obviously, it was, a, it was a major thoroughfare. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, we have gone beyond our written hour. Thank all of you very much for coming. Thank Jim for a